Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking about open source investigations with Sam Dubberly from Amnesty International. Sam is head of the Crisis Evidence Lab and manages the Digital Verification Corps in the Crisis Response Program at Amnesty. Sam is also a fellow of the Human Rights Center at the University of Essex, where he is also a research consultant for their Human Rights Big Data and Technology Project. He has published research into the impact of open source investigation and vicarious trauma, and is co-editor of the book Digital Witness, Using Open Source Information for Human Rights Investigation, Documentation, and Accountability, published by Oxford University Press in January 2020. Sam talks to us about some of the most important investigations he's worked on for Amnesty and provides some useful advice for journalists new to the field. He also points us to two free Amnesty training courses launched this week in English, Arabic, Spanish, and Persian. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Sam Dubberly now. Sam Dubberly, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks for having me. Um, I just thought we would start by talking a bit about how you came to head up Amnesty's Crisis Evidence Lab and you know your background and how you managed to come into this world of misinformation and disinformation. Sure. So um, for a large part of my career, the early part of my career, um, I worked in, in newsrooms. Um, I, was, I was particularly involved in working for an organization called the European Broadcasting Union, um, where I started my career. I started as a sub-editor, producer, editor, then kind of ran the news desk. So I worked on all the kind of breaking major news stories from, I guess, 2002 onwards um, until when I left the EBU in, in 2013. Um, so I guess in, in that period, I saw the transition from, you know, traditional, you send out a, a reporter, a camera person, an audio engineer, a producer to film a, 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 a new story, you know, be that in Baghdad during the, the war, during, you know, be that, you know, in the Anders Breivik shootings in, in Norway, you know, um, anything like that. And then saw that transition slowly to... Well, actually, we can, you know, we can get all this content from the social web. We can get all this content from from social media. And then during the, you know, the Arab Spring in 2010, the start of the Syria conflict in 2011, it was really involved in in how do we, you know, use use YouTube in particular, but also Facebook at the time and Twitter at the time as news gathering tools. And and that was something quite new in newsrooms. And when I when I left. Uh, the EBU and left the journalism world in 2013. I did a fellowship at Columbia uh, Journalism School at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism, where um, Claire Wardle, who, who's one of the directors now of First Draft News, and I did, did research into kind of the impact of, of what we called then user-generated content, but what now might be called open source information. Um, on 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 the news gathering process, and um, you know, what did that mean? What did verification mean? What did you know? What are the ethical questions around using this kind of content? And it didn't didn't paint didn't paint a very good picture. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of interested in what that meant for other spaces. What did it mean for you know people around the world who now have increased connectivity? You know, the power of a camera in their hands and a power to share that with the world. 
what did that mean also for their human rights? What did that mean for, for a human rights space? So I kind of started also looking into and in, in researching a bit into that space. And then I was lucky in, in 2016 um, to be asked by Amnesty to come and set up a program called the Digital Verification Core, uh, which was... Uh, serve several purposes, one of which was to help Amnesty International itself in its research using open source information. There was a realization that, you know, this power to tell stories, this power to gather information, to gather, you know, testimony digitally um, was something that, you know, the human rights movement had to, had to engage with. Um, and then there was also the kind of side, which is like, well, Amnesty is, is the world's largest human rights movement it's a volunteer movement and how can we you know in the in the in the 21st century how can we engage volunteers in a meaningful way so the digital verification core is one of, a, of one of many solutions to that and the digital verification core is a is a network now with seven universities when it started in 2016 it was three universities we've built that up to seven where students are trained in finding discovering um videos or photos of, of human potential human rights abuses circulating on the internet that can be for example you know excessive use of force by police in a protest or it can be you know an extrajudicial execution in a in a conflict um and anything in between really um so we train the students in how to find that and then importantly on how to verify that so that means like you know which street corner did it happen when did it happen how do we know the people who are involved are, are involved and the change between the, the newsroom and the, and the human rights research office um, is, is not so large in that, in that regard. Um, so I was lucky enough to, to be asked to set up the Digital Verification Corps um, in 2016, and that kind of grew over the, it's grown over the last, last, last four years, I suppose. We're now in the fifth year of the program, fifth academic year of the program. Um, and, and then over time kind of like became, you know, we've asked them to be the head of the evidence lab. And the Evidence Lab is a team within Amnesty that, that tackles all of these questions around, you know, open source data, open source information that, that we can leverage. So we use satellite imagery to look at, for example, you know, potential human rights abuses in parts of the world we, we're unable to, to access. So, for example, uh, you know, the potential building of a mine in the Central African Republic, which, ex, which impacts the water of a, of a nearby village. Uh, we we use large data sets, so we've used like data sets recently to analyze um, health worker deaths during the COVID pandemic, uh, and then like looking at photographs and videos and and really gathering those photos and videos to to build a representation of what happened. Right, and what would you say was probably the most challenging investigation, human rights investigation you've worked on to date? There are so many. There's so many different ways to approach that question. Um, I think there's, there's challenging in terms of you know finding the information and being sure about what you're saying, and then there's challenging in terms of you know a lot of this work really entails looking at the worst that humanity can do to each other. So it can be really you know really distressing to work on, um, and then the other challenge can be actually getting you know persuading researchers who are used to doing the you know interviews and to integrate new forms of data into their work. And I think we've had challenges on, on, on all of those. Um, I think scale has become a, a big challenge as well. So we're trying to do things at scale increasingly, and that becomes, that becomes challenging. So, for example, we, we put out a report um, earlier this year in October around the protests, the popular protests in Chile in 2019, 
where we're using open source information as well as field testimony to really show who was responsible for injuries and blindings of protesters on the streets of Santiago de Chile. Um, and really kind of going into the real detail of identifying, you know, police officers or Cabinero forces who were who were on the streets and seeing the same person in video after video. And that was like, the challenge there is actually going through it, you know, step by step by step by frame by frame by frame and saying like, hey, look, that's the same guy and that's the same guy. Look, they've got the same number on their shoulders. And you have to be lucky, but you also have to be meticulous in, in, when you're doing that research. But then, as I said, the other challenge can be you really seeing the worst that humanity does to each other. And, and that, you know, the traumatic side of the challenge is, is, is a very real one. Um, so going back to what I mentioned already about the, the use of smoke grenades in, in Baghdad was phenomenally challenging. Um, because, again, to verify the videos, you have to go through, you know, frame by frame by frame and really tentatively extracting every small piece of information you can from, from a video. And what was happening in Baghdad was the, the security forces were firing um, smoke grenades. They weren't tear gas canisters, they were smoke grenades. And the average tear gas canister weighs about 50 grams. So if it hits you on the body, it's going to hurt. It can, it can kill you. But it's, it's definitely going to hurt. Um, these grenades weighed 250 grams. So, you know, five times as heavy. And if they were hitting the body, they were entering the skull. You know, if they hit you in the head, they were entering the skull and killing you and they're releasing smoke. So you can imagine even saying it, right, sounds awful. You know, and we, we had to look at these and there were 26 incidents we identified of deaths in this way. And that was really hard. That was really draining and really hard to actually go through that, you know, frame by frame to look at these people dying in the most excruciating way. Um, so I think those are the particular challenges I, I would go into. And that, it just kind of like becomes, over time it becomes, you know, because of the amount of video that exists now in the world, it's like event after event after event. It's, you know, often people talk about, you know, is the world getting worse? I'm, I'm not sure that it is. And all kind of, all, all indicators, you know, in, imply actually it's, it's better. It's just, we're, we're seeing more of it, right? We see you know, the conflict in Ethiopia. We see the conflict in the Karabakh. We see what's happening to the Rohingya people in, in Myanmar, which we otherwise wouldn't have done and we otherwise could have turned our eyes to. And with that becomes, you know, this great opportunity, but also, you know, it is a challenge to go from geography to geography to geography, looking at the worst that humanity can do to each other time and time and time again. Right. You know, I was um, watching a couple of uh, talks you gave on YouTube and you were talking a lot about human rights violators playbook, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was quite interesting because a lot of times journalists, if they cover something that maybe people aren't so happy about, they're off often debunking misinformation and then people come back and say, oh, this is the fake news or this is, you know, you're biased. I mean, what, what are some of the things to look out for with that? I mean, I think it is. It's it's um, that's exactly what happens, right? We put we put out something. We put out something on on an execution in Mozambique earlier this year, and we could work out basically where and and pretty much when it happened due, due to like analyzing the length of shadows of the, the soldiers who who were firing the bullets into and executing this woman were you know the shadows they cast can actually tell you pretty much what time something happened, right? And we knew exactly the street corner it happened on. Yet the government came out. You know, the public authorities came out and said, no, this is fake news. And it's always interesting, I think, when 
when a, when a government feels impelled to react and call it fake news, actually to me often means there's something, there's something else behind it. It's like, you know, if it really was, you know, misinformation or, or disinformation, um, I think that you would, you would ignore it actually, but actually if you come out and say, this is fake news and it's a great conspiracy by amnesty to, to hold us to account, um, then I think we're onto something. We actually is actually kind of almost in a way reassuring because we do go very rigorously through and we are very cautious about what we say. So it's that kind of like when a, when a state authority comes out and says, this is fake news, it's like, hmm, why are you saying that? <laughs> I think that's always very interesting. You know, I think, and that's definitely part of the playbook, right? It's they're playing to an audience in their a domestic audience, which says, you know, we're standing up to amnesty and we're going to ignore this and we're going to, you know, there is going to be impunity, but often what we find also is then, you know, this this happened with a with an incident in Cameroon in 2018, where you know we verified a video of the execution of, of two women um, and two children, um, where then the the troops in question were arrested and put on put on trial. Um, you know, the BBC then went and took this and made a, a very big feature out of it that's become quite famous called An Anatomy of a Killing. But we were the first to actually come out and say, you know, we verified this video. We, we believe it to be true. And then the Minister of Communications actually came out and said, this is fake news. We published our press release and, and then the soldiers concerned were arrested and put on trial. So, you know, us coming out and saying something actually then becomes a very important thing. Right, absolutely. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us about your uh, the book you co-edited, Digital Witness, Using Open Source Information for Human Rights. Like, who was this intended for? What is the book? Um, what is it really about? Sure. So the, the book was born through, I already mentioned the, the Digital Verification Corps. It was, it was born through realizing that we were trying to teach students how to do this work. And um, I guess we were in some ways making, up, making it up as we were going along. And I don't mean that to belittle what we were doing, but we were having to, you know, write all the case studies, write all the training materials, because this really was something very new. And, and we realized, I mean, I think one of the great strengths of the Digital Verification Core program that we built is, you know, applied human rights masters. We're not talking about the importance of open source information. You know, they were not saying, you know, you can integrate this data into your into your into your research as well. And you know, so so the DVC kind of served another purpose, which was actually to help universities think of the importance of using these new. I say new; they're not new anymore, but these 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 new ways of doing research into what they're teaching the students because. It's important, and you know, people who are going into work in human rights NGOs around the world now need to know how to, you know, really build on the this this information, the the information that's out there to integrate it into research because it is so powerful. So with the DVC, we realized, well, these resources don't exist. So two of our closest partners, um, uh, Alexi Koenig, who's the executive director of of UC Berkeley Human Rights Center, and Dara Murray, who's a senior lecturer at the Human Rights Center at the University of Essex, the three of us came together and said, hey, we, you know, we need a book for this. <laughs> we need a, you know, the, we need resources, and those resources don't exist. Uh, so we, as, as, we were, as we were bringing these different chapters together, we realized it wasn't a textbook per se, um, 
but it wasn't either kind of a fully academic theoretical collection and it kind of lands somewhere in the middle, which is great because I think the audience for Digital Witness is very broad. It can be used by students to learn how to do this work and think about the challenges, the ethical challenges, the mental health challenges that I've already touched upon, uh, but also the actual processes of putting it together. You know, how do you go from finding a video to verifying a video? How do you integrate satellite imagery? So, so, it's, so it's that, but it's also hopefully as well accessible for people who are already working, who are, you know, later on in their career, who want to build, bring these techniques and these resources into into their work, into their organization. So we've tried to make it, you know, cover as many bases as possible. Marvelous. Now, I understand you're also a researcher um, for the Human Rights Big Data and Technology Project at the Human Rights Center at the University of Essex. Like, how does that research kind of tie into the work you do with Amnesty? I mean, is the book just one example of that? Or The book is one example of that. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was the Human Rights Big Data and Technology Project at the University of Essex that, that gave me the space to, to contribute to, to the book, to, to bring it to fruition, to have it see, see, the, see the light of day, uh, for which I'll be I'm eternally grateful. You know, they, 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 this project gave us a space. This was one of the first research projects. It's, it's drawing to a close now. It's got about another year to run, but it started you know, back in 2015 to really think about the different sides of technology and the implication that had for human rights. Um, and I think that's been groundbreaking. And it's like you see a lot of organizations now and, and NGOs now kind of really plug into the discussions that, that Essex was having back in, in 2015. So, you know, the impact of facial recognition technology on human rights, for example. And what does it mean if, you know, you, you walk through a train station and suddenly, you know, your face is picked up and you're plugged into a database and that's the whole database is searched. So it's been doing things like that, like, so what the impact of, of technology on the right to health, which, you know, again, five, six years ago was something like, oh, that's nice to think about, but think about today, you know, in a global you know, pandemic, you know, how does a vaccine, how does technology imply, you know, work with how a vaccine gets rolled out across the world and for, for COVID-19? You know, really important questions, right? And then they were also looking at the side that I'm, I work on and I'm interested in, which is, you know, how do we take this technology and make it beneficial for human rights? How do we use it for accountability? How do we use it for advocacy? How do we plug it into the arguments that are being made? And, and that's a really interesting space to be in and really interesting to think about. And hopefully we'll be publishing something on that early in 2021. Brilliant. Um, and I wonder if you could talk to us a little about some of the resources that are out there for journalists um, as well as others when it comes to digital verification. So, I mean, so number one, uh, <laughs> the book I just talked about, to plug the book again, you know, Digital Witness with Oxford University Press, published in 2020, doubly Koenig Murray editors. Um, I mean, jesting aside, you know, I, I think that is a resource that, that people can turn to. Um, and then importantly, with Advocacy Assembly, the um, online training platform for activists, we've, we're, we've, we've just launched two courses on how to use open source information for, for human rights work. But I think it's also very much focused at, you know, at journalists. So the different modules kind of go into different parts of like, how do you verify, how do you laugh? There's also some like human rights, very specific human rights thing, um, angles. But I think the great thing about that platform that we've built with Advocacy Assembly is we, again, a bit like the book, we bring in like different expert voices. Like we've really gone to great lengths to, you know, have one of the specialists in archivists for the NGO witness, Yvonne Ng, 
you know, she's, she does the, the chapter on, she does the course on, on archiving. How do you archive content? You know, we have a, a lawyer from UC Berkeley, uh, Lindsay Freeman doing a section on, you know, using open source information for, for accountability, et cetera. So I think that's a really good resource. Um, and then at Amnesty Ourselves, we have a website we call Citizen Evidence, citizenevidence.org, where we, we place case studies. So when we actually publish a large report for which we've used open source information, we've used weapons analysis, we've used satellite imagery, we go into like, you know, to give a little bit behind the scenes of how we do this work, we go into kind of a case study around, you know, we use satellite imagery to look at this incident in Brazil, for example. You know, how do we go about finding the satellite imagery? Uh, where can you go if you're trying to get into the space to look for satellite imagery in an accessible way. So I think those, those three resources are, are, are really, good ways to, really good ways to start. There's all sorts of other things out there as well. So, you know, um, Bellingcat has a, has a good blog where they put out, you know, lots of different case studies, um, so on and so forth. But it's really great to see the, the, the emergence of a lot of resources. And, and this kind of open source investigations community is actually very good sharing tips and techniques with each other so if you know you follow the hashtag OSINT on, on Twitter for example you'll get a lot of tips um, there's a really nice group on, on Twitter called quiz time for example where they put out you know geolocation challenges and they help each other and that's a really good way to learn as well for example. marvelous um, and now I know you talked a lot about trauma earlier and I just wonder what are some of the things that you do when you're kind of exposed to a lot of very graphic content, um, is there anything that comes to mind that, that, you know, you kind of look out for with your team when you're working on a very intense investigation? Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. I work in a, in a, in a team. It's a small team, but you know, we, we were a team that supports each other, um, that looks out for each other. Um, and we've, we've made a lot of effort to build a culture within our team where talking about trauma is okay where like recognizing that this work is hard is okay. Uh, where, you know, we, we share a lot of jokes about, you know, we go to a great length to share a lot of jokes about our experiences and so on and so forth. And that's really important because I think the best way of dealing with trauma is to, is to acknowledge it head on. You know, it's like we're experiencing something really bad at the moment, guys, you know, team. We need to, we need to acknowledge that and we need to know that this is happening because that allows us in the moment to actually say, oh, that's why I haven't slept so well. That's why I've been a bit, you know, moody at home. That's why, you know, I shouted at my, at my kid, at my dog, at my cat, uh, when I no, wouldn't normally because I'm working on something that's really upsetting and really hard. And if we're able to do that, I think this is a key thing. If we're able to do that, we're, really, we're able to acknowledge it and adjust. Um, that said, there are, you know, there are mitigation techniques. And, and I think the key thing here is that each individual has to find their own one. You know, there's no kind of like silver bullet, like if you do this, if you go for a long walk at lunchtime, 25 minutes, you know, you will feel better. That's not, that doesn't work, right? It's like on a Monday that might work, but you know, on a Tuesday you might need to do something else or for you as an individual that might not work. So it's, it's really a question of finding out, you know, what, what works for you to take yourself out of that space. For me, it's stuff like, you know, I'm a big football fan, soccer fan, you know, so it's like reading gossip about football transfers, soccer transfers is actually one of the ways in the day that I'm like, actually get, a, get my head out of the, the nitty gritty of the work, the real details of you know, smoke canisters going into people's heads in Baghdad, 
sorry to be graphic, you know, but then transferring that to like looking at, oh, you know, Liverpool might sign so-and-so and my local team, my favorite team, Sheffield United is, is, you know, bottom of the league, but we might sign somebody in the winter transfer window, you know, it'll all be okay. We'll be safe. You know, that actually really helps me. Um, and especially in this time of pandemic, right? It's like, it used to be, well, you know, be social, hang out with friends. And obviously, you know, we can't do that. So we have to find ways of replicating that in whatever way we can. Uh, as I said, I'm lucky that I work with a team and we can, we can have conversations about it. But for those people who, who don't, and there are a lot of people in this space who are somewhat on their own, you know, we, we really have to find ways during this pandemic time of, as I say, go back to the, the acknowledgement of, of what we're doing and then taking steps to work out what works for us in the moment. Yes, in the moment, but also longer term to, to kind of mitigate the worst effects of, of, doing, of doing this work. Interesting. Um, and I just thought we could, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you were a broadcast journalist um, and a lot of the people listening to this podcast are journalists. So what, like, what's one piece of advice do you have for them who are maybe getting into the open source investigation world and, and want to do more in this? I mean, I think, I think the number one piece of advice is, is it kind of repeats on a little bit of what I've said already, but you know, this is a space that's actually phenomenally welcoming. Um, so don't be hesitant in asking for help and don't be hesitant in just going for it. I think it's, it's, there's a lot of, I think the one criticism I would, I would have for, for the, for this open source space, as people call it, um, is while the space is, is formally welcoming, it, I can imagine it feel very kind of mystical. Like there's some kind of magical techniques behind it all, and I think you know, the, the, one of the reasons we did the course with our advocacy assembly on on verification, one of the reasons we wrote digital witness, one of the reasons we set up Citizen Evidence Lab was really to to serve to demystify the space, um, because you know it's it's just another way of doing research, right? It's just another way of looking for the who, why, what, where, and when. So. You can do it. People can do it. And it's just like applying those critical thinking skills in a slightly different way. And, and I think, you know, the welcomingness of the space and the fact that people can do it really means that people should, you know, just jump in and, and give it a go and, and like find a niche that they could look in for that look into their space. There's so much more to be, to be done and found that really, you know, the, the opportunities are, are rather vast. Um, and finally, are, are there any challenges that you see going forward in this digital verification? Is there any new challenges that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are, there are always unexpected challenges in this in this area. Um, you know, a lot of what we're relying on is you know people the ways that people have managed to understand how to search. YouTube, how to search Facebook, and and the and the big tech companies are always changing things uh, without consultation. So that becomes a problem. Um, yet, you know, people find ways around them all the time. So, so, you know, it's just always remembering it's not so much the techniques that are important. It's the way you think about approaching. It's a mindset. It's the open source investigation mindset. You know, there's some videos you can't, for example, geolocate. Everyone says like geolocation is so important for, for open source research. Well, sometimes you can't geolocate it. So what else can you say even to show that something is, is, is authentic and show 
that something shows, you know, a human rights abuse or a, or something of interest in the to to the general public in, in the journalism world. You know, so thinking about about it with the mindset rather than relying on tools, because one of the big challenges is the tools are always changing, because we're reliant on freely available tools that are put out there. Either, you know, APIs from the social media companies, the big platforms that, you know, are then adapted by, you know, good-willed, well-willed researchers who then put it out freely available and then something changes in the API. And then, you know, suddenly that tool is redundant. So we have to find another way around it. So that's one of the big challenges. But I think, you know, with that kind of approaching it with the mindset, we often, a mindset rather than techniques, we, we get around that quite nicely. Well, Sam Dubberly, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. It was absolutely fascinating hearing this insight from you. Thanks for giving me the time, Tara. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.